Good morning. I'm going to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study through the book of John. Now, in chapter 5 of this fourth gospel, I think it's revealed the most important and foundational truth to any human being will ever understand. And that is that Yeshua is Yahweh. Now, if you remember back a few weeks ago, this is the problem with with breaking this down like this. This is chapter 5 is just a great story and it's all connected together. And so we have to kind of keep it together, but I couldn't teach 47 verses at one time. Today I'm going to do 17, so that's a stretch for me too, all right? But it's it just important to keep this thing together. Remember in, in chapter 5 in the beginning, Yeshua's in Jerusalem. He's there for a feast. We don't know which feast, but he's there for a feast. And he goes to the pool of Bethesda, which basically is this huge swimming pool in the city of Jerusalem, and there's a lot of sick people there. There was just this, they believed that, that this water had healing powers. We're not sure of all the details here, but there, there's just tons of sick people. And Yeshua goes and he finds one lame man that had been there for 38 years. And he asked the man, do you want to be healed? And the guy goes, I need someone to help me. I just can't get down there. So the Lord says, look, get up, pick up your bed and get out of here. And so the guy gets up, rolls up his mat and begins to walk away. He is instantly healed. And listen, although I'm sure that guy was excited, I'm sure a lot of people would be rejoicing. The Jews were angry. I mean, what is wrong with these people? They're, a man's healed after 38 years of sickness. They're mad because it was the Sabbath. So they began to persecute Yeshua. How dare you heal somebody on the Sabbath? I'd be thinking, how did he do that? Wouldn't matter what day it was. Hey, how did you do that? How did you heal this man? And so Yeshua answers their persecution by my father is working until now and I myself working. I hope you got this by now. Basically, he's saying, listen, guys, you know Yahweh works on Sunday. He maintains the universe. He brings up the sun. He, he gives people life, people born, people die. Yahweh works on the Sabbath. You know that. And guess what? So do I. <laughs> that really just ticked them off. It got their blood boiling. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. This guy just healed him in. Let's kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. They understood by what he said that he's equal to Yahweh. So now in their eyes, he moved from violating the Sabbath to blaspheming. Well then, you know, alright, you're accused of blaspheming. So for the next, from verse 19 to 47... Yeshua gives one long discourse that declares, you're right. I am saying I am equal with Yahweh. That is exactly what I'm saying. Verse 23 is a very significant text. He says, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. People, this is a great verse to memorize for all the cults and all the isms and schisms who, you know, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Yeshua. Just give them this verse. If you don't honor Yeshua, guess what? You don't honor the Father. There's just no way you can do it. In light of the emphasis in the Tanakh on the exclusive worship due to Yahweh, 
This verse is extremely powerful. It's an affirmation of the deity of Christ. Christ is to be given the same honor, the same exclusive worship, the same exclusive obedience, the same exclusive commitment of all our love, all our heart, all our soul, all our mind as God the Father. All honor that is due Yahweh is due Yeshua. So they accuse him and he goes, you're right. It's exactly what I'm saying. Let me, let me make it clear to you. All right. Such is the equality and unity between the Son and the Father. That to worship Yeshua is to worship the Father. And to not worship Yeshua is to dishonor the Father. This is an amazing statement, people. He says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Now, as we said last week, this verse is transitional. It concludes Yeshua's explanation of the Son's equality with the Father from verses 19 to 29, and it introduces His clarification of the Father's testimony about the Son in verses 31 to 47. Now, everyone wants to argue, does this verse go with the previous? Does it go with the second? Yes. Okay? It's transitional. Some translations consider it the conclusion of the preceding, like if you have the NIV, they, they stick it with the preceding verses. The New American Standard would stick it with the following verses. It's a transitional. It goes to both of them. And Yeshua is reemphasizing here what He said in verse 19. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Now, the Greek text emphasizes the word nothing. There is not even one thing Yeshua does by Himself because that would be independent of the Father and He doesn't do that. This is the claim that infuriated the Jews and caused them to accuse Him of blasphemy. He says, I'm equal with God. I can do, I don't do anything on my own initiative. I don't act independently of the Father. If I do, it's because the Father does it. We work together. So after laying out a clear case of his deity in verses 19 to 30, he now calls another witness beside himself to give testimony in verses 31 through 47. He's laid out this stuff. He's made it very clear, but I need another witness. So let me call somebody else in. Now, it's interesting that most commentators see him calling five witnesses here. All right. John the Baptist, the scriptures, um, miracles, uh, Moses, all the, the Father. I think he calls one witness. One very powerful witness. The Father. God the Father. He's the one that these Jews say they love. He's the one these Jews say they worship. He's the one these Jews declare to be their God. So he goes, let me call in your God to give testimony to who I am. He says, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. What in the world is he saying? <laughs> is he saying, when I say something, it's not true. It must be false. If I testify myself, it's not true. Well, how can someone who is the way, the truth, and the life say something like this? Well, let's compare with what he says elsewhere in John 8. In John 8, he says, so the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself, which is what he was doing in this text. So they say, your testimony is not true. You're just giving it yourself. Well, Yeshua answered and said to them, watch what he says, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. That sounds like a contradiction from what we just read, doesn't it? 
For I know where I came from and where I'm going. You guys don't know that I'm from heaven, but I do. You do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according. Now listen. In John 5, he said, if I alone testify by myself, my testimony is not true. But in this text, it says, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. So in our text, I think Yeshua is saying, if the burden of evidence to support the tremendous claims I have been making exclusively, exclusively depends on myself, if it's me alone, and alone is not in the text in the New American Standard, but I think it belongs there. I think that's why they added it. Then my testimony is not true. In other words, his witness is false because remember what he just said in the previous verse? I can do nothing of myself. So he says, if I, te- if I alone testify, that wouldn't be true because I'm doing everything in accordance with what the Father does. Well, let's go on in John 8. He says, I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it. That's what he's saying. The Father and I together. And the Father who sent me, even if your law, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. So he's saying, my judgment is true because I'm not judging alone. I don't do it alone. The Father is bearing witness. I do what he says. I follow him. The testimony of two men is true. I am who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. That's the same thing that's going on in our text. He testifies, but the Father is testifying. You are testifying about yourself. They say your testimony is not true. Basically, they're saying your testimony is not sufficient if you're doing it by yourself. And that's what he's saying. He just said in the preceding verse, I can't do anything on my own initiative. We're working together. And, you know, the Torah required two witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or sin which he has committed. It's still a good rule to go by, people. Okay? On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So Yeshua is following Jewish legal practice. He brings forth another witness. I've been testifying about myself. Let me bring someone else in. The Father. Now, in the Mishnah... 2.9, it states, none may be believed when he testifies of himself. And you can understand that. You know, someone's given to him, oh, well, let's, who can back that up? Yeshua knows they're not going to accept his testimony alone, so he introduces someone else who testifies to his deity. He says, there is another who testifies of me, and I know that he test- his testimony, which he gives about me, is true. The truthfulness of his claims about himself didn't rest on his own testimony exclusively. It just explained that he only did what the Father did. Therefore, his witness about himself must reflect the Father's witness about him. Now, a lot of commentators see that another here. They say it's John the Baptist because the next verse he starts talking about John the Baptist. Well, the Greek word here for another is alos. And alos means another of the same kind. There's another Greek word that you can use for another. That is heteros. Heteros means another of a different kind. But he's saying there's another of the same kind. What does he mean? There's someone else just like me. He's on the same level of me. He's equal to me who testifies. He's talking about the Father. I think the language... 
more closely fits the idea he's referring to the Father than to John the Baptist here. The Father is the other witness. And it makes sense. They would give heed to the Father's witness, okay? I mean, they said they loved Him. They said they worshipped Him. They said they were all about Him. So, well, let me bring in the one that you seem to care about and see what you have to say here. So how does the Father testify to the deity of the Son? That's a lot of controversy about that. Many say that what he's talking about here, the Father's testimony, is at the baptism of Yeshua and at the um, transfiguration. All right? Well, the problem with that is, you know, at his baptism, we said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He certainly did testify, but we don't have any indication that anybody heard that but John the Baptist. That's not a real big testimony. Okay? At the transfiguration, we got the same thing. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Who's there? Who hears that? Peter, James, and John. Three guys. Again, not a real big testimony there. So I don't think he's talking about the father's testimony at his baptism or at his transfiguration. Look at what it says in, in 1 John 5, 9. If we receive the testimony of men, and we do all the time, somebody tells us something and we believe it. The testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this. He has testified concerning His Son. God the Father gives testimony to the Son. So in the end, the final witness to my truthfulness, Yeshua says, is God the Father. So Yeshua's point in verses 30-32 through is that His self-testimony is true because He never acted independently of the Father. Then in verses 33-39, through we have the Father's testimony. But here's the interesting thing. The Father's testimony comes through three different means. But you have to understand, this all goes back to the Father. Alright? It comes through John the Baptist, who was a prophet of God. It comes through the miracles of Yeshua. Then it comes through the Scripture. He says, you have sent to John, and he testified to the truth. The wording here reflects John 1.19 where the Jews from Jerusalem sent a delegation to interrogate John the Baptist. And John replied to them, and he confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. See, they thought he was the Christ. John said, oh no, no, it's not me, it's him. So the Jews thought he was the Christ. They sent people, people came out of Judea, out of Jerusalem, pouring down to the Jordan River where he was preaching, out in the wilderness. 20-mile hike, they go down to hear this guy preaching. There was a national fervor over the prophet John the Baptist. He stirred things up. It had been 400 years since they had a prophet. And now he's at the very spot where Israel entered the promised land, and they're just excited something's happening. It's time. And they go and hear this man. And they liked what he had to say for a little while. Josephus, the Jewish historian, in his antiquities, tells that when John the Baptist came, the people were aroused to the highest degree by the ministry of John the Baptist. They really thought something big was happening. They were excited. So Yeshua is saying, this is the Father's testimony, because John the Baptist, first of all, gave testimony to me, and he was a prophet sent from God. They all acknowledged that. John 5.34, but the testimony which I receive is not from man. He says, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, Yeshua is saying, you know, I don't really need men to back up what I'm saying. Because I got God to do that. But I'm talking to you about John because I want you to be saved. 
So he mentions John the Baptist not for his own sake, but for the reader's sake. See, people are saved by believing Yeshua and John's point, his whole thing. He was a forerunner to Yeshua pointing to him. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's the Messiah. That's what John was all about. In fact, Zacharias understood that. He said this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. So Yeshua's testimony is not from man, but He uses John because John pointed the people to Christ. He was a lamp that was burning and shining. And you were willing to receive it for a while in His light. Now, John the Baptist's ministry was to be a light, to light the way for Old Covenant believers that they would see that Yeshua was the promised Messiah, that He had arrived. And remember, John said He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And Elijah is described in similar terms to these in the intertestamental book of Sirach, which describes Elijah as a prophet like fire whose word burned like a lamp. Yeah, this is what he was all about. John's ministry I probably had ended by this time since Yeshua spoke of his witness as a past event. John was probably gone. He's probably dead. And notice what it says here. John was a lamp. He wasn't the light. He was a lamp that bore witness to the light. And we, we already saw this in chapter 1, so I don't want to belabor it here. I think the issue here is, how can you receive a man who's calling himself a prophet of God, you rejoiced in him, and then you rejected everything he said. That's what you Jews have done. The Father spoke through John the prophet, and you ignored his message. He pointed to me, and because you didn't like him pointing to me, you said, forget it. He was a witness from the Father to the deity of Christ. They rejected that witness. Again, they just didn't like who he, They wanted him to be the Messiah. They went to him, are you the Christ? Are you that prophet? He said, no, just a, someone pointing to him. Verse 36 says, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. He says that the testimony, this testimony is greater. So John the Baptist was a witness to him. It was a, the father's witness was through John, but this one's greater. It's greater than John the baptizer. He moves from the words of the prophet to the works of God. And by works, Yeshua means his miracles here that he did. His miracles were unique signs that he had been sent by the father. You know, how do you explain the miracles that Christ was performing. How do you see a man do the things he does and say, boy, you're breaking the Sabbath. That's not the point here, people. This guy's been lame for 38 years. He's up, he's walking around carrying his mat and you're worried about what day I do this on? That's a work of God. It just didn't even register. Remember the whole context of the discussion about his deity is the healing this lame man. This guy's now walking around in Jerusalem. Nobody can dispute what happened. They ignore it. It's like they see the guy and they just close their... No, no, we, we're not even going to talk about this guy that got healed. See, because these works gave clear indication God is working. 
Remember Nicodemus said about Yeshua? He says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Yeshua by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God's with him. You agree with that statement? People can't do these kind of things. I mean, we got charlatans today who claim all kinds of things. I've seen people healed of low back pain. I've seen them healed of sinus headaches. I've seen them healed of the demon of post-nasal drip. But I've never seen anybody with an arm missing grow back or someone dead get up. Never seen any of those kind of things. Because nobody in and of themselves can do these miracles. The only explanation is that God was working with Yeshua. That's the testimony. Look at John 7.31. But many of the crowd believed in Him. That's exciting. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, He will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will He? And so they're figuring out in their heads, they're going, the Messiah can't do more than this. He must be the Messiah. They recognized the miracles demonstrated Yeshua was the Christ. John 10.25, Yeshua answered them, I told you and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. The works make it really plain. You look at what happens, you see the miracle, they prove God's working with this man. John 10, 37, 38. If I do not the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. If the works are proof of that. The miracles should be enough proof that he is one with the Father. 11.47.48 Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? This man is performing many miracles. If we let him go like this, people are going to believe in him. we got to do something. And he says, watch, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Okay? The miracles didn't affect the Pharisees because they're worried about losing power or losing about prestige. we got to stop this guy. Never for a second, considering maybe these miracles prove something about him. 14.11, believe me that I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. These miracles bear witness. One more, John 21.25. And these are also, and there are also many other things which Yeshua did. There's a lot of other miracles he did that aren't recorded. If they were written in detail, I suppose that the word itself would not contain the books that they were written. In other words, the evidence is overwhelming. But the Jews, they were blind. Just think about what they saw. Earlier in this text, Yeshua said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. What's he claiming here? I can raise the dead. This is something they know only Yahweh raised the dead. And yet here he is standing claiming he can raise the dead. And you know what? Many of them had actually seen him raise the dead. John chapter 11, they're going to see Lazarus come forth out of the grave. All right? When he calls him forth out of the grave. But let's turn to one of my favorite scriptures, Luke 7. I love this story. This story is so loaded. Yeshua goes to a funeral. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain. His disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. There's a whole bunch of people with him, all right? 
This is not an isolated incident. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. All right, it's a funeral. Now, watch what the text says. All right, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. What is what does that tell us? There's nobody to support this woman. Okay, there's no man in her life. He, she only had one son. She's a widow. There's no husband. So this woman lost not only her child, but her means of support. And we know all through the Tanakh, all right, the Lord cares about the widows and the orphans. Now here's a widow. And there's a sizable crowd from the city with her. They're just having a funeral procession. A good-sized funeral. A lot of people there. Yeshua disrupts the funeral service. When the Lord saw her, Watch. He felt compassion for her. So, here's our God. And there's a funeral and he says, this lady's got no one to take care of. We've got to fix that. And he said to her, don't weep. And he came up and he touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. They're like, well, what's this guy doing? And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And they're all thinking, what, this guy lost his mind? But Watch. The dead man sat up and began to speak. What did he say? What do you say when you sit up in your funeral and you're, you're in your own funeral? Thanks for coming. Appreciate you all being here today. I'd like to say a few words. <laughs> it's, I mean, this is a miracle. This guy gets up out of the coffin and Yeshua gave him back to his mother. Here's your provision. She'll, she'll take care of you. Do you think that would get your attention if you were at the funeral? You ever been to a funeral? I mean, funerals are not happy times. We're grieving because, not for them, because if they're a believer, we're rejoicing there with the Lord, but we're grieving because we miss them. And can you imagine they sit up in the coffin? Get out of the coffin? Well, notice what the people's response was. Fear gripped them all. (laughs) That's something you don't see every day, so they're like, what in the world? Watch, and they began glorifying God, saying, it doesn't say they began glorifying Yeshua. They knew this was a miracle of God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Their response was just like Nicodemus. God must be with this man. This is a sign that should get anybody's attention. At Yeshua's command, the dead sits up and talks. Well, in our text, Yeshua says, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. It should be clear, people. <laughs> I had to share this with you. One commentator talking about this text says this, Miracles alone did not prove Jesus' deity, since Moses, Elijah, and Elisha had done miracles too. What's the difference? He's right, right? Didn't, these, didn't Moses, Elijah, and Elisha do miracles? What separates them from Christ? Yeah, they did. But did Moses, Elijah, or Elisha claim to be Yahweh? No. Okay, they didn't claim that claim at all. But guess what? Yeshua does. He claimed it over and over. Why would Yahweh demonstrate His miraculous power to someone who was saying they were equal with Him if they weren't? This is a huge different thing, people. we got to understand, Yeshua is saying, I'm God. And then does His miracles. We know Moses, Elijah, and Elisha came from God. They were prophets of God, 
But none of them claim deity. Because they weren't. So the Father testifies to the deity of the Son through the prophet John. He bore witness. And He also testifies through the miracles. And I think these witnesses escalate. Each one is a little greater. Each one is a little more important. Verse 37, And the Father who sent Me has testified of Me. You have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. Now, think about this for a second. This is the third witness. It's the Scriptures. Okay? And how ironic this would be if the feast that the Lord is going, the, the reason He went to Jerusalem, beginning of chapter 5, was for the feast. If this feast was Pentecost, because the feast of Pentecost celebrated Yahweh giving the law to Israel. And He says, you've neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. You never heard Him. You have no clue who God is. That's what He's saying. You don't have a clue who God is. How was the Father testified of Christ? All the Father's revelation from the beginning of creation had pointed to Christ, and that revelation is contained in the Scriptures. And I think this is the greatest revelation, because people, we're not seeing the miracles today, but we still have the revelation of God. The Jews have not accepted the witness of the Father because they had never heard His voice. This is a veiled reference to Mount Sinai. God spoke. Guess what? You guys didn't hear him. You didn't hear him. And since Yeshua is the very manifestation of God, and since the Jews didn't see God in Yeshua, it follows they'd never seen God. Yahweh was in fact standing right in front of them, being accused by them of blasphemy. And they didn't even know. They had not even done what their forefathers had done, which was believe. Though Yeshua gave a much clearer revelation of God than what the patriarchs had. God has testified about me, and it's obvious that you don't know Him, or you would have seen the testimony. You'd see Him, and you would see me. Yeshua's words were the Father's words. And those who saw Yeshua had seen God. He says, you do not have the word abiding in you, for you do not believe in Him He sent. They had the word of God. They had it in their hands. They had it in the scrolls in the synagogue. But listen, what he's saying is, you don't have it in you. It's not abiding in you. Alfred Edersheim writes this. We know that at the time of the Syrian persecutions, just before the rising of the Maccabees, the possession of portions or of the whole of the Old Testament by private families was common in Israel. That's a striking statement. Alright? The possession of portions or the whole of the Old Testament by private families was common in Israel. And he goes on, he says, for part of those persecutions consisted in making search for these scriptures and destroying them. And he quotes Maccabees, as well as punishing their possessors. So, They had the Scriptures, but they didn't get it. And he says to them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. This is our third witness, people. It is the Scriptures that come from the Father. The Word of God. The Scriptures, he says, testify about me. The Scripture here means the Tanakh. This is the only Bible Yeshua ever had. 
The Tanakh was the only Bible the disciples ever had. It's the only Bible anybody in the New Testament had. The Tanakh. And the Father in the Tanakh gives testimony to Yeshua over and over and over. The word search here is the Greek word eryonao. It's a strong word. It's used in extra-biblical literature of an in ancient times of a lion prowling after its prey, stalking its prey. It's used of wild dogs that are tracking game. The word came to mean track, and then it came to mean trace, and then it came to mean to investigate. So he's saying to them, listen, you guys dig into the Scriptures. You trace, you investigate the Scriptures. And the verb search here can be taken as either an indicative or an imperative. The imperative would be, you go search the Scripture. Makes it a command. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think the context favors the indicative mode. He goes, you're always searching the Scripture. Because you think you're going to find eternal life. After the destruction of the Temple of Solomon in 586 B.C., the Jewish scholars of the exile substituted the study of the law for the observance of the temple rituals and sacrifices. They couldn't do that anymore. So they just said, we've got to do something, so let's put all our emphasis on studying the Word of God. And they taught that that would bring life. In the rabbinic tractate of both the sayings of the Father, it says this, He who has acquired the words of the law has acquired for himself the life of the world to come. Just dig in there. You'll get life out of it. Great is the law, for it gives to those who practice it life in this world and in the world to come. One of the most famous rabbis of that time, Rabbi Hillel, had taught the Jews that by studying the words of the law, they would gain for themselves life in the world to come. This is why they were so diligent. They're earning eternal life. They're still doing this today. Digging, memorizing, pouring over. You know, Yeshua here is repeating the age-old theory, or I mean, Hillel is repeating, not Yeshua, the age-old theory that exists today that if you're religious, you can earn a place in heaven. Just keep digging, guys. Listen, the study of Scripture to them had become an end in itself. Rather than a way of getting to know God, rather than a way of seeing what the Lord wanted for them, Eternal life comes through trusting Yeshua, not through Bible study. You're not going to earn it through digging all you can dig in the Scriptures. You're searching the Scriptures because you think you'll find eternal life in them. You know, the Jewish leaders of Yeshua's day were serious students of the Tanakh. But they studied it for the wrong reason. They studied to earn eternal life through their effort. Judaism believed the law was the source of life, so that's why they're putting so much time here. The Jewish rabbis, listen, they were legendary in their study of scriptures. They would put the average Christian to shame. They memorized large portions of scripture. Some of the rabbis, the rabbis Rishmika, had memorized the whole Tanakh. And I mean memorize to the point they could work with it. You ask them, how many times does the Bible say dove? And they rattle off the places where dove was mentioned all through the Scripture. They knew it. They copied it with extreme care. I mean, some of them, they'd copy it and they'd wash, get a new pen and copy, you know, copy it. I mean, they just, they, they counted the words, they counted the letters. They could tell you the middle letter of every book, the middle letter of the Bible. I mean, the minutia was great with them. But they missed it. Scripture, he says, testifies about me. They never saw him. 
We are to study the Scriptures to see Yeshua. And if your heart is open, you will see Him everywhere. But if your heart is dead, you won't see Him at all. One of the many passages, I think, that demonstrates the deity of Christ, and believe me, people, there are so many. When someone says, oh, the Bible never talks about the deity, I'm like, man, what Bible are you reading? Okay? In the fourth gospel, when we get to chapter 12, Lazarus quotes Isaiah 6 there. You know what Isaiah 6, you're familiar with that text. It's a throne room vision. It says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, Uzziah was their king, all right? He, and he was a good king. He was a godly king. He protected Israel. Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian general, was on the horizon. He was threatening Israel. But hey, all is well because guess what? Uzziah is a... I mean, he's, he's a strong military leader, okay? They got Ronald Reagan in office. So they're not worried what's going on out there, okay? Bring it on. We can handle it, all right? But Uzziah dies, and so Isaiah says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Guess what? He's still on the throne. Okay? Yeah, Uzziah's gone, but Yahweh's still seated on the throne. He's in control. He's lofty and exalted in his train and the robe filled the temple. Seraphim stood above him. It's a throne room scene. There's a, the guardian angels are there. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So who does Isaiah see in this text? He sees Yahweh of hosts. Now, Yahweh of hosts means Yahweh of the armies of heaven. So why are you worried about tiglath Pileser? Don't worry about him, alright? Well, then after quoting Isaiah 6 in John 12, Lazarus then says, These things Isaiah said because he saw His glory and spoke of Him. Talking about Yeshua. Isaiah is witnessing the glory of Yeshua because he saw the glory of Yahweh revealed from heaven and he says he saw Yeshua on the throne. He's God. He's equal with the Father. Verse 40 says, You are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Yeshua makes it clear that life is only in him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Now notice the problem here. You are unwilling. That's the problem. You don't have a desire to come to me. This, I think, is the doctrine of total depravity in light of the witness of John the Baptist, who was a prophet of God, in light of all the miracles that Christ performed that they saw, they witnessed firsthand, in light of everything the Scriptures had to say about Christ. Bottom line is, they're not willing. Nope, you're not the right Messiah. We want a political leader. We want to be free from Rome. We want prosperity. We want free from bondage. You're talking about the spiritual stuff? We're not really interested in that. They're not willing. We know the Bible says the unregenerate man is unable to come to Christ. He's dead in his sin. He's blinded by the fall. And even when given full light, even when the complete evidence is laid out before him, he's like, nah, he's unwilling. He doesn't desire to come to Christ. Sinful man is both unable to make any contribution to his salvation and he's unwilling at the same time to come to the only one that can save him. No, they're just unwilling. Unwilling. And this ignorance, this inability of even the Jews to see God and to really know Him underscores what Yeshua made clear in the third chapter of John to Nicodemus. You must be born again. There's no other way. No other way you're going to see this. No other way you're going to get this. No other way you're going to understand it. 
You'll not see the kingdom of God unless you've been regenerated by the Spirit of God. Then Yeshua says, I do not receive glory from men. Now, I don't think this translation is all that good. I think, better put, we could say, from you I receive no glory. He's talking about them. They, they, don't, they don't see the glory. They don't see Him at all. Verse 42 says, but I know you. You do not have the love of God in yourselves. Oh, my word. Listen, this is... Alright, he gives the testimony of the Father. And now he's just gone to indicting them. I mean, he is just slamming these Jewish leaders. When you say to a Jewish leader, you don't have the love of God in you. Let me ask you something. What's the first scripture a Jew would memorize as a child? Okay. Hero Israel, Shema, Shema Israel. God is one. Yahweh is our God, God is one. And then what's the rest of it say? You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And look, he says that these guys who quoted the Shema every day of their life. Every day of their life. Shema Israel, Yahweh Akenu, Yahweh Achad, they would say over and over and over every day. He said, guess what? You guys don't love God. That would have infuriated them. They prided themselves on being lovers of God. But had they truly loved God, they would have loved the Son. But they didn't. The love of the Son was not in them because they didn't know the Father. I have come in my Father's name and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. The Jews didn't receive Yeshua. This echoes John 1.11. He came to his own. His own received him not. Yeshua's statement that they would readily accept another Messiah is very prophetic. There's a lot of literature about all the false messiahs that showed up at that time. When the Jewish revolt began in 66 AD, actually when it started, then Rome came and surrounded the city. You know, no one went in, no one went out. That was a problem, but the other problem was there were three men emerged who all claimed to be the Messiah. And the Pharisees and the other authorities broke into factions and they all lined up behind one of these, one of these three Messiahs. And then inside the city, while Rome's surrounding it, they're fighting with each other. And they're burning up the food supplies in the city. And killing each other. So, I mean, the Romans are just sitting outside and they're destroying each other inside. The outcome was the devastation of Judah. They're killing themselves off. And Yeshua said, others are going to come, you're going to flock to them. Because they're more what you want. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? The truth of their loving to receive glory is demonstrated very clearly in Matthew 23. He says they love the place of honor at banquets. They don't love God, but they like to be big shots. And they love the chief seats in the synagogue. Hey, let us sit in the best seats. And they love the respectful greeting in the marketplace and being called rabbi. They love all that stuff. They're really into themselves. You know, Paul taught that a true Jew was one who was circumcised in heart and whose praise was not of men, but from God. They didn't want that. They wanted the praise of men. They liked being the big shots. Now, this second word glory here, I think should be capitalized in the text because I think it refers to Christ. You do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. 
You miss it. You don't get me. You don't see me at all. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. He's been doing that, okay? He's been indicting them one thing after another. You don't know God. You don't love God. You don't hear God. You've never seen Him. Know nothing about Him. Then he says, don't think I'll be accusing you before the Father. The one who will accuse you is Moses, in whom you set your hope. The Jews love Moses. He was a great hero. He was the one who brought them out of Egypt into the promised land. He was the one that gave them God's law. And Jewish teachers believed that it was following Moses that they would be delivered. But he confronts them with the perversity of the thinking. Moses gave law so the people would realize their failure. The purpose of the law was to reveal sin. You can't do it. Look what the law says. They missed it. Moses never taught the law was an end of itself. He pointed the people to the coming prophet in Deuteronomy 18. There's another prophet coming. Like myself, he says. But they missed it. Verse 46, For if you believe Moses, you'd believe me. He wrote about me. He says, if you believe Moses, you'd believe me. How's that possible? Well, the whole Tanakh is about Christ and it starts with Moses. Remember the parable in Luke 16 where Yeshua talks about Lazarus and the rich man? Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom and the rich man goes to a place of torment and he's pleading with them. He said, look, could you, Abraham, could you send someone to my brothers? Please send him to my brothers and warn him about this place of torment. What's Abraham tell him? All you need, you already got. He says, but Abraham said, they have Moses, the Torah, that's what he means, and the prophets, let them hear them. Just go read your Bible. They don't need witnesses. That's all they needed. He says, but he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. You know, you see a miracle, you're definitely going to repent, right? We saw that proof of that already, right? But he says to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Someone did rise from the dead. And what they did was lied about it and tried to cover it up. <laughs> not, you know, not believe it, they just tried to cover it up. In Luke 24, he's walking along the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples. And he said to them, oh foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They're downcast, they're discouraged. Oh, the Lord was put to death. He says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, start the Torah, goes to the prophets. He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Moses and all the writers of the Tanakh wrote about Christ. But you have to have spiritual eyes to see it. The prophecies about a coming Messiah were about Him. The symbols, the ceremonies of the temple with the sacrifices and the high priest were all about Him. The Passover was about Christ. The tabernacle is an elaborate picture of Christ. The historical passage about a rescuer from the enemy was about Him. He was the rock that provided water in the wilderness. He was the manna for food. It was all about Christ. We could go on and on and on. Yeshua said of Moses, Moses wrote about me. Now again, Moses is referring to the Torah. So what's that say? Who do you think wrote the Torah? You know, there's many scholars today, many liberal scholars saying, you know, 
They believe the first five books of the Bible were not written until the 6th century. Alright, now listen. If they're not written in the 6th century, they're not written by Moses. And I've said in this series in the past that I believe there's a lot of strong evidence, and a lot of scholars believe this, not liberal scholars, conservative scholars believe that the first 11 chapters were written during the Babylonian captivity. A lot of evidence for that. But most of the Torah had been written by Moses. And when he talks about Moses, he's talking about the Torah. They're similar. doesn't mean he wrote every single line and every single word, but he wrote the majority of it, so it refers to him. Most of the Torah, and that's what he's saying here. He says, Moses wrote about me. Well, if none of the Torah was written by Moses, guess what? Moses didn't write about him. Because in the 6th century B.C., Moses wasn't around. All right? He says, the Scripture testify about me. And then he says, Moses wrote about me. So Moses and the Scriptures are synonymous. They testify, Moses testifies to me, to who I am. And listen, you guys pour over this thing day and night, and you miss it. So from Yeshua's perspective, the Tanakh is all about him. The law, the prophets, they're all about Him. You know, the Word of God, the Tanakh speaks of many different things, but in its totality, its purpose, its cohesive theme is about Yeshua, who's the Christ. That's what it's all about. He says, if you do not believe His writings, how will you believe My words? See, if the Jews put their trust in Moses, they would have believed Christ. They would have looked for this coming Redeemer. This verse raises the final question that the Jews couldn't answer. If they did not believe in Moses who wrote about Yeshua, how could they believe in Yeshua? And the answer is, they can't. They can't. People, it's not enough to revere the Word of God. Or even to diligently read it and study it. And I think, you know, Christianity as a whole reveres the Word of God. I mean, I know people, you can't set anything on the Bible. You can't, you gotta put it in a, you gotta, you know, oh, this is God's Word. But they don't read it! That's dishonoring the Word of God to me. You claim it's high rank and yet you ignore it. That is the height of hypocrisy. Alright? We are to read the Bible, but listen, it is my heart's conviction that this is a spiritual book. And apart from the Spirit of God, you'll get nothing out of this. You can read everything about it. You can study the history. You can study the language. You can study everything. And I know scholars who do that and they don't have a clue who Christ is. They're dead in their sins. You have to be given life from the Father. The Jewish authorities poured over this Word of God and yet they missed the point of it. The promise of the Scriptures was there is coming a Messiah. Guess what? He's exactly like Yeshua. In fact, it is Yeshua. And they missed it. We need to approach the Bible like David did. Open my eyes, he said, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. That's how we approach the Scripture, people. Because we do it in our own humanity. We do it in our flesh. We might learn verses. We can memorize verses. We learn a lot of things. But if you want to see Christ, you better be on your knees 
reading. And I don't mean that literally. I just mean you need to be in prayer when you go to the Word of God, realizing it is a spiritual book and the Spirit will empower us so we may be see the truth. And this is why so many people, you know, you can share with them what the Word of God says and they're like, they don't get it. It's all a spiritual thing. These Jews, can you imagine what they experienced? Watching dead people come to life. Watching sick people healed. Watching, you know, multitudes of people fed with a couple fish. All this stuff. John the Baptist saying, that's the Christ. The Scriptures, if they had searched the Scriptures, they wait a minute, Isaiah 53 talks about a suffering Savior. They viewed that as the nation, not as the Messiah. They missed it all. And it was because they didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear. They were dead. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your grace to us, for all that You have given us. Father, I pray that You would continually give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We may see the truth of Scripture, Lord, not for self-benefit, that we would just know You. That we walk in fellowship with You all of our life. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Believers, we need as believers to embrace the Scriptures. All of them. Both the Tanakh, the New Testament. Because as we do that, we will come to know the Father. You know, this, this is an awesome chapter in the Word of God. It's an awesome chapter on the deity of Christ. I mean, it starts with him healing a man and he heals the man to start a controversy. I want you to recognize who I am. The authorities accused him of claiming to be God. And they were right. He was. Then in verse 19 to 30, Yeshua tells the Jews, you're right, I'm equal with God in every way. Then in verse 31 to 47, we have the Father's threefold testimony to the deity of Christ. So by the mouth of two witnesses in this text, the deity of Christ is established. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. People, that verse is so clear. Please grab it. Please, you know, commit it to memory. Please understand it. You ignore the Son. You don't have the Father. You ignore the Father. You don't have the Son. 